The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, gang, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. My name is Penny, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 5, uh, 1 John chapter 5. So over the last number of weeks, we've been uh, in this book of 1 John, and we're coming uh, close to the end of it. Uh, this week, we'll be in the first half of 1 John 5. Next week, we'll be in the second half, and we'll be completing the book, and then we'll look at 2 and 3 John, and, and then uh, begin some new, new passages, new series uh, following that. But if you were here with us last week, um, then you heard Tobias, one of our other pastors, talk from, uh, preach from 1 John 4. And he said that if, if Paul's love chapter is 1 Corinthians 13, then the love chapter for the Apostle John is 1 John 4. And that's because 1 John 4 is filled with discussions about God's love, his love for us, our love for him, our love for one another. That this is what marks us out. God's love. He loved us, therefore we love him. And, and it's because of this love that, that those who know this love that we are transformed, that we are changed, right? That, that we move from death to life, that we move from darkness into light. It's by God's love that he does this, that he changes us and brings us into this new life. And those who have new life, we actually bear the marks of this life. And that's what our passage this morning is telling us about. It's informing us about, it's helping us to see what are those marks that are to mark the life of a follower of Jesus, who know the love of the Father. Well, to see that, we need to read 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Father, we come to it acknowledging that we want to believe, we want to love, we want to obey. But we also acknowledge that we need your help to do these things. For apart from you, we, we would never believe, we would never love, we would never obey. We would go along our own paths. And so we need you to work and move in our lives. And so we pray that you would, even now, as we come to this, your word, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we would see the beauty of your gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So many of us know and are familiar with that story, Rapunzel, right? We've heard it. It's been passed down from generation to generation, this story of the young girl with the beautiful long hair who is kidnapped and and placed, sequestered in a, a large tower, right? She's hidden away. She's been uh, stuck in this tower for many, many years, and she's stuck there, that is, until her Prince Charming arrives, right? Her Prince Charming comes, and he stands at the bottom of the tower, and he looks up, and he calls out that familiar phrase, right? Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. And so she does, right? She lets down her beautiful blonde hair. It comes through the window, and it's so long that it goes down to the ground, and her prince, he climbs up the the hare, and he slays the wicked witch, and he rescues Rapunzel. It's a story that's been passed down from generation to generation, and it's a story that a younger generation is familiar with because of Disney's rendition of it called Tangled. Y'all maybe are familiar with Tangled. It's just the story of Rapunzel, except there's a little twist to this story. Because in Tangled, Rapunzel doesn't just have long, beautiful, blonde hair. Her hair is magical. You remember if you've seen the movie that Rapunzel's mother is bearing Rapunzel, right? And, and she becomes sick, she becomes ill, and before Rapunzel is born to preserve her mother's life, there's a magic elixir that's made from a magic flower, and her mother drinks it, and it saves her life, it prolongs her life, and she gives birth to Rapunzel. But that's not all the magic did. The magic was transferred from the mother into Rapunzel, and it inhabits her hair. So that now her hair can heal cuts and wounds and scrapes. It can stave off death and prolong life. From the time of her birth, her magic hair set her apart. It marked her. Even after the years of being separated from her parents, even after the years of being kidnapped, even after her prince came and said, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair, it was her hair that set her apart. It was that magic hair that distinguished her as a daughter of the king and the queen. You see, her hair was a birthmark. It was a birthmark that showed that she was royalty, It was a birthmark that showed who she was. And in our passage, John tells us we bear a birthmark. We bear a birthmark. It's not in our hair. It's not magical. No, it's something else. You see, he says that of all those who have been born of God, we bear the mark of that new birth. And he uses this language, born of God, right? It's not a new idea. We see it multiple times in our passage. But, but he actually refers to us being born of God eight other times in this letter. It's not a new idea. It's one that John would have been familiar with because he heard it first from Jesus. When Jesus said in John 3 that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so consistently and repeatedly we hear that those who believe in Jesus, who trust in him, that we have been born to new life, that we have been born again. And as those who experience this new birth, we bear birthmarks. It's not discoloration of skin. It's not our hermangioma, if you know what those are. It's not our little rise in our epidermis. No, the birthmarks that we bear are different. They're the birthmarks of belief and of love and of obedience. 
That's what John is telling us in our passage, that these are the marks that we are marked with when we are born of God. And he begins with the mark of belief. We see it bookended in the first paragraph of chapter 5, or yeah, chapter 5. In verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so John is saying that belief is a mark of those who have been born of God. But he's not just speaking of some sort of generic belief, right? In our world, sometimes people will call us to believe in something, anything. It doesn't matter what you believe. Believe in yourself. Believe in your leaders, right? Believe in something, anything. It doesn't matter. But, but that's not what John's saying. It's not a generic kind of belief. It's very specific. He says, believe in Christ, Believe in Jesus and believe specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is the content of our belief. We see it in verse 1, right? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now remember that word Christ, it's a title. It's saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited one, that he is the one the prophets foretold, and he is the one that the promise of God find their fulfillment in. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior we have been waiting for. That is what we must believe. We must believe who Jesus is, that he is the Savior of sinners, the Son of God, the Messiah. And we believe this not because it makes our hearts full, not because it makes us feel warm and fuzzy, not because uh, it may give us great comfort, though, though those things may very well be true. No, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, because it's true. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist of the 20th century, he once said that, that the reason why we should believe the scriptures, why we should believe the claims of Jesus, why we should believe the gospel is because it's true. And that's what John's telling us. In verses 6 through 12, he's pointing us to the truthfulness of who Jesus is. Look at verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so you hear what John's doing, right? He's saying that the reason why we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is because the Spirit and the water and the blood testified to the truthfulness of that. So that's clear now, right? Spirit, water, blood, we've got it all laid out, right? <laughs> of course not, right? It's a little confusing. Like, how is it that the Spirit and the water and the blood testify to who Jesus is? Well, the Spirit is, is pretty easy to understand, right? It's pretty apparent what John's talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? He's talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's testimony to the truthfulness of who Jesus is. And we know that the Spirit, when the Spirit comes upon us and fills us and gives us new life, that he reminds us of what Jesus had spoken. And he confirms to us the claims of Jesus. This is what Jesus said he would do. In John 14, Jesus said, I will go away. But when I go away, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will come. He will come in my name. And when he comes, he will bring to remembrance all the things that I said. And so the Spirit's testimony is clear what John's talking about. 
the Holy Spirit confirming to us the truthfulness of Jesus. It's the water part, particularly, that gets a little confusing. The water and the blood. And I, and, and I will say that there are a number of different opinions by commentators, a number of different options that are thrown out by theologians to help us understand what water is referencing here. And I'm going to spare us all the different options for the sake of time and just tell you which one I think is right, okay? And it is right, so... Uh, no. <laughs> no, but uh, but what I think John is talking about here is he is talking in reference to water to Jesus' baptism, and blood is in reference to Jesus' crucifixion. And so what he's talking about is he's talking about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the culmination of that public ministry. Now, why do I think this? Well, I think this for a number of reasons, but one is remember that John is saying that these things testify to the truthfulness of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. And do you remember what happened in his baptism? That when John, Jesus was baptized by, by John the Baptist, that, that the Spirit descended upon him and rested upon him, right? The Spirit was anointing him, and that when the Spirit rested upon him, that the heavens opened up and there was a voice from heaven in Matthew 3 that declared, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You see, the voice proclaimed from heaven, the voice of the Father, this is my Son. This is the Messiah. This is the one to come. You see, at his baptism... The, there was confirmation from the Holy Spirit and the Father of who Jesus is. The water of baptism testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's not just the water that testifies to this, so too does the blood. His death, his atoning work, that's what his blood points us to. Right in Matthew 26, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, This is my blood of the new covenant. In Acts chapter 20, we're told that by his blood, he bought the church. In Romans 3, we're told that he's the sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And Romans 5 declares that we've been justified by his blood. You see, again and again, the New Testament speaks of Jesus' blood as testifying to the fact that he is the one who makes atonement. He is the Savior, the Messiah. He is the Christ. And so the spirit and the water and the blood, they testify to the truthfulness of who Jesus is. And so those who have been born again, we are to believe this testimony. In fact, we do believe this testimony because we have been born again. And this testimony isn't just that of the spirit and water and blood, but, but John tells us it's the testimony of God himself. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So you hear what John's saying. He's telling us that as powerful and as great as the testimony of man might be, right? Like, as we testify to the truthfulness of who Jesus is, as we declare to one another and to others the power that was at work to change us, to redeem us, to save us from our sins, to bring grace and forgiveness, as we testify to that, as great and powerful as that is, the testimony of God is even greater. If we are to believe one another, why wouldn't we believe God? That is his logic, right? 
In fact, he goes on to say that if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you make God a liar. Did you see it in verse 10? Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So y'all, let that sink in for a moment. To not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, it is not to inhabit some neutral space. It's not to enter into this neutral territory. To not believe that is to actually be declaring that God lies. That he is deceptive. That he is a liar. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do we believe? What do you believe about Jesus? See, Jesus, the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of the water, of blood, of the Spirit, the testimony is that Jesus isn't just some man. He's not just another prophet. He's not simply an example, a moral example that we are to model our lives after. He's much more than that. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. And that is the birthmark of the Christian, to believe that. But that's not the only mark, belief. The other mark of the Christian is love. It's the other birthmark. We see John returning to this theme of love in verses 1 through 3. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, I don't want to belabor this point because we've talked a lot about love uh, over the course of this series, right? It, it feels, at least to me, it has felt like every passage or every other passage, every sermon or every other sermon seems to, seems to hit on this idea of love, right? I mean, we heard it last week. We heard it the week before. I, I bet we heard it three weeks ago, right? Like, it just keeps coming again and again and again. So I don't want to belabor it, but let me say this. The fact that John continues to return to this theme should tell us how important it is to who we are. The fact that John keeps coming back again and again and again should tell us that the love of God and our love for one another is not something that we just kind of move off of. Right? John doesn't grow tired of talking about this. Now, I imagine for some of us, especially maybe those of us who have um, been in the church for a number of years, maybe we grew up in the church, we don't remember a day when we didn't believe. I imagine for many of us, we, we hear love and we think, yeah, yeah, love of God, love of neighbor, love of one another, heard that, been there, done that. Can we just move on? Can we talk about something meatier, something weightier, right? Like, let's talk about some doctrine that uses really big, multisyllabic, syllabic, I can't even say the word, really big words, right, that make us sound really smart and, you know, that no one really understands anyway. Like, let's get to those sorts of things. Do y'all, y'all, well, you wouldn't say that because I just talked about love, <laughs> right? You wouldn't say we need to move off of love because we just read it, but, but it's easy for us to think that, that, that as we mature, as we grow, we, we stop being done with love. But you know what? You know what I've never thought? I've never thought, I told my kids I loved them yesterday, so they don't need to hear it today. I've never thought that. I've never thought to go to Kat and go, hey, Kat, 
sweetheart, you, you don't have to tell me you love me anymore because you told me like a month ago and I believe you. Like I really believe you, so I don't need to hear it anymore. I would never say that, right? And if I went to her and said, hey, I told you, you know, 20 years ago when we got married, I love you. You don't need to know it anymore. Like she would, you guys should laugh at me and say, that is a really bad idea, Penny. Right? Because we don't do that with people we love. The people that we love and that we care about, we tell them we love them. And we keep coming back and telling, telling them that we care about them. And we show them we love them and care about them. And what those that love us, we expect to hear it from them. We don't grow tired of saying it. Now, I know if you're a teenager, you're like 16, 17, you, you might get tired of hearing your mom say you love them. But, but I have to tell you, I've never thought, Kat, you just tell, tell it to me too many times. You've just said it too often. No, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. So why wouldn't we feel the same way about the love of God? The love of God that is far greater than our love for one another. That is far greater than a husband for a wife or a child for a parent or a parent for a child. No, we don't grow tired of telling one another we love one another. And so the same should be true of when we hear of the love of God. You see, if we grow tired of hearing of God's love and his call for us to love one another, then the problem isn't with God and the redundancy of his word. The problem is with us. The problem is that we don't truly understand or grasp our need for his love and our need to demonstrate that love. I mean, I've said it before in this series, but it's worth repeating. Love is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And he said, the second commandment is like it, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And he said that the world will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, because you love one another. You see, those born again, those who have new life, we bear the birthmark of love and of belief and finally of obedience. Look what John says in verses 2 and 3. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So you see what John's doing here? He is tying the love of God and the love for the children of God with obedience to God. To love God means we'll obey God. Now it's worth saying that, that it's not reversed. We don't obey so God will love us. We don't obey to merit or to, to earn his love or his favor. We obey because he loves us, right? That's what we heard last week. We love because he first loved us. And we love as a demonstration of our love for him. And y'all, this makes sense, doesn't it? That this is how we would respond? Because when you love someone, you want to please them. And since God is our greatest love, our hearts and our minds are to be oriented to please him above all else. To please him by following him and obeying him and keeping his commandments. And John tells us his commandments are not burdensome. Now I imagine that's not how we often think of God's commandments. It's not how often the world appropriates law and commandments, right? That they're not burdensome. 
right? It's very easy for us to think of God's law, of God's commands as something akin to a straight jacket that restrains and constrains our freedom and desires, our longings and our wants. But that's not how the Bible presents God's law and his commandments. I mean, think about what the Psalms say. God's law, it's sweeter than honey. His commands are a light unto our feet that that lead us in the way that we are to go. They revive the soul. Jesus said that if anyone is to come after him, that all who labor and heavy laden, he will give you rest. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says that when we come to him, he he doesn't take off the yoke of ourselves or the yoke of this world or the yoke of sin and leave us to go on our own way. He replaces it with his yoke, his yoke to lead us and to guide us. And this yoke is easy and light. It is not burdensome. You see, the reason why John says God's commandments are not burdensome is because they are given to us not to destroy our joy or to remove our happiness, but out of love, God gives them to us so that we would be our most joyful and our most happy. You see, friends, when we are obeying God's commands, we are functioning the way that we were created to be made. The way that God made us and formed us, the way he created us, was so that we would follow him, so that we would obey him, and so we are actually our most human when we are obeying him. We are, we are our most image-bearing when we are walking in his ways. See, his commands are given to us because he loves us, and we obey him because we love him. And so we obey him with our minds. With our thoughts, we give them over to him. We take every thought captive. We obey him with our words. Our speech is to come under his authority. Every word that's on the tip of our tongues and passes by our lips comes under his rule. We obey him with our gifts. Our abilities are used in service to him. We obey him with our possessions. Our money is to be used as he dictates it to be. You see, with every part of who we are, with everything we have, we obey him. And we do so because those who are born again bear the birthmark of obedience. And we bear the birthmark of love and of belief. And John tells us that those who have these marks, we will overcome. That's what he says in verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, he's saying that those who believe, who love, who obey, who experience this new birth, because we belong to Jesus, we have new life. A life that isn't given over to the world and isn't defeated by the sadness of sin and isn't overwhelmed by even death itself, but instead we have new life, a new birth that is the birth into eternal life. That's what he said. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, what he's telling us is that this world is not the end. That for those who are in Christ, we will overcome because Christ has overcome. And so, people of God, those who know this new birth, those who have been born again, believe. 
love, obey, bear the birthmarks of your new birth. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you for the new life that you have given us. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have brought us into your light. Thankful that you have not left us in our dead, but you have given us life. That you have breathed in us new life, that you have made us new creations, for the old is gone and the new has come. And so for all of that, we thank you. And ask that you would help us as these new birthed people to live with the marks of that new birth. That we would believe in our Lord Jesus, that we would love as you have called us to love, and that we would obey and follow you all of our days. And so help us to bear these marks. Help us to live as your people so that we would honor you with our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, Amen.